హలో సురేష్ కుమార్ వెల్కమింగ్ యూ టు ద హిందూ పార్లే Today we shall discuss whether the National Education Policy, NAP 2020, approved by the Union Cabinet last week, can help India provide access to universal education. Joining me are Ms. Leena Chandran Vadia, who was a senior consultant in the Dr. Kasturangan Committee that drafted this NAP, and Prof. Anita Rampal, former Dean, Faculty of Education at Delhi University. I am happy to have you both on board for this discussion on this millennium's first National Education Policy. which seeks to align itself with the sustainable development goal of ensuring inclusive and equitable quality education for all in the next 20 years i'll begin with ms leena for the first time early childhood care and education starting from age 3 onwards has been included in the national education policy do you think the 10 year deadline set by the policy to make all children entering grade 1 school ready through the ecce is practical Thank you, Suresh. Um, I think uh, we have to be ready because every year that we lose, we lose some children. We lose intervening to help them, uh, you know, at the time that their brain is developing fast and they can learn a lot, uh, we must help them learn as much as possible. So that's that's a deadline that we must try to meet and we should try to meet. Okay. Uh, Professor Anya, Anita, your thoughts on this, please, uh, on this 10-year deadline. Uh, is it practical? I want to say very clearly that since April 1st, 200, 2010, uh, we have a Right to Education Act in place, which means it's a fundamental right of every child, age 6 to 14, not to have access. The words are not access or the words is not universalization. It's a fundamental right for free and compulsory education in a neighborhood school till completion of elementary education. So there are no deadlines, there are no time uh, timelines. This is a fundamental right of every child age six from since the last 10 years. So there's no question of having a target of another 10 years. What this policy is doing is it is very quietly but very problematically going back on a fundamental right of a child, which is enacted by law. All right. Uh, while on the subject of Right to Education Act, uh, Ms. Lina, the draft NEP that was released last year had suggested that ECCE be included as an integral part of the Right to Education Act and also expand the scope of the legislation till grade 12. Yes. But surprisingly, the NEP that has been unveiled now is silent on this. Without the right to free and compulsory education, can the goal of universal education be attained? So I saw that too, and I'm a little surprised because also the document, but the document does say that it wants uh, uh, to achieve universalization of education. So I suspect we'll have to wait uh, for the implementation plan to come because that's where all the real relevant details are, right? If they um, say they want to do universal education and from... So but, uh, by being silent, uh, doesn't it mean that they are uh, trying to overlook the RTE or because they're not specific on that? There's just one mention of the Right to Education Act in that entire document. That's right. So we'll have to we'll have to wait and see until the implementation plan comes on how they propose to deliver on what they claim they want to do, which is uh, universalize education between 3 and 18. 
and and you know what i was talking about earlier was this move to actually bring children into um you know sort of formal education fold at age 3 that had a timeline because there are lots of practical issues uh, with uh, anganwadis and uh, preschools in in primary schools and handovers and training of anganwadi workers and all of that and so we must have a system that is settled uh, as soon as possible Uh, but it doesn't take away from the rights that are embodied in the right to education which begins at 6 and which we felt was too late actually we needed to begin at 3 okay so professor anita how do you see this virtual blackout of the rta act from the policy's final uh, document that we have with us no it's clearly uh, you can see what they're saying it's clearly trying to abandon that act because it's saying it's too regressive it said it said it very loudly in its 500 page document and even in this final document it said it twice at least that it's too regressive we have been moving all those regulations so that we can have many more alternative models and those alternative models and multiple pathways those include open schooling at grade 3 5 8 and so it's very clear that it's saying it's not going to have a regular schooling with a well qualified teacher uh, with the basic minimum that the right to education act said which every child should have a right to and which shouldn't have timelines uh, it's already had 10 years so uh, all the timelines that were supposed to have been done including uh, 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 you know training of teachers and getting qualified teachers are all over long past so now when this act when this policy says that it's too regressive and we'll be allowing open schooling and the courses a and b a b and c of the open school which is class 3 grade 3 grade 5 it's very clear we don't have to wait for anything else it's already said it not only that what it said is that you know this entire clubbing of three years of early childhood education with one and two of primary school and again calling this a foundational literacy and numeracy mission is so worrying because we know that the nanwali is not professionally trained to be a teacher you know and uh, that has been one of the areas of this massive icds which is a very good program for nutrition but very weak on almost non exist it doesn't exist the educational component to say that now nanwalis and community members and volunteers and to make and the worst of all is it's saying children tutors i mean the 500 page document actually called it a national tutors program can we believe it that a national policy saying children will become tutors for the for other peers in their school in their classes this is what it said and it also had said the 500 page document last year had said that a remedial instructional aid called a ria will be available and they be employed for up to 10 years to actually make sure the children who are dropping out or children who are not able to keep up with the school that in the early years they will be uh, you know looking after these children so this document is just saying the same thing it's only calling it community members etc etc volunteers but keeping these basic five years so on the one hand we are all very happy that yes early childhood education 
comes within the ambit of education, of the education ministry's mandate, it's very clear that it's going to, it's really trying to abandon its responsibility of even pro providing a good professional teacher for the earliest years. And it's saying that those who don't have a 10 plus 2 in the Anganwari will be given an online education, online one-year diploma. So you have people who have not even completed school to be now doing the most foundational, the most critical part of a child's learning for five years now, even one and two has been clubbed to this. And you know, this whole talk of preparatory, I mean, there's nothing preparatory. A child is a child at a given age, and her development is what is the most crucial uh, you know, mandate for us, for anyone working in education. To say that they're preparing for something else is, again, a travesty on the child's own rights for her own development, wherever she is at her age. She's not being put into a system and being prepared for something else. All right. So, uh, Ms. Leena, you know, while on the subject, you know, do you see a conflict in the objective to provide equitable access to education when the policy at one place says education is a public service, but it goes on to advocate philanthropic private participation, which many see as a bid for privatization? What I wanted to say was that the reality of our country is um, that, uh, um, you know, we have so many kids who are dropping out. So let's not get into that section. Uh, Professor Rampal touched on many, many sections, the early childhood, which is which we think is until grade um, two, and then the uh, preparatory phase, which we think is until grade five. But we should we should decouple them. So let's first talk about this, um, you know, smooth uh, transition from Anganwadis into schools. Um, so, you know, uh, Professor Dr. Kasuri Rangan is a scientist and a technocrat. What he did, so what he did because he came into education was bring a fresh perspective. And we had to, we identified what the problems were. And the people who told us about the problems, many of them told us also possible solutions. And then it was a question of weighing pros and cons and also consulting government about feasibility of doing things and arriving at a more flexible framework where all existing resources, and I mean, I would like to underline that, all existing resources should be pressed into service to ensure that every child gets quality early childhood care, which begins at three, at a time when they are in a position, their brains are so plastic that they are in a position to learn many languages, and they should learn it with uh, in a play-based environment, uh, you know, and there the Anganwadi workers uh, score a lot because they are really mothers and, um, you know, women who are, uh, as the people from the Ministry of Women and Child Development told us, that they are actually uh, uh, sort of replacing the parents of the children. They give them hugs and they uh, sing songs to them. And so that is all, all right as a, as a uh, way to begin um, uh, teaching the children. And because many we found that statistically a lot more children were entering grade one at age five rather than age six. So they were not even ready for, for grade one, but they were coming in because they were done with the Anganwadis. Um, 
so therefore we we felt that they were actually losing out on uh, uh, foundational literacy and numeracy because also we have the states have this policy many of the government schools are in the regional language and the regional language was foreign to more, many of these kids so all of these problems are what we are looking at to say that you know between 3 and 8 somehow we should two two things one is that we must ensure that the children have foundational literacy and numeracy and two is to ensure that the children are speaking and i mean this not writing but at least speaking at least two languages and preferably three because for them it's child's play so long as adults consistently speak um, certain languages to them so if we can do these two things we have leveraged the fact that their brain development is you know 85% complete by the age of 6 so this was the approach that we took so for early childhood we can come to the other stages later yeah yeah and uh, this apprehension that this uh, advocacy of uh, philanthropic private participation uh, which actually many see it as a bid for privatization what are your thoughts on that so the policy was completely clear the committee members everybody involved were completely clear that the government the focus of the policy has to be that government education is of very high quality this is the only way that we will make sure that every child no matter where they are in very remote areas are also given education because it's very unlikely that private sector is going to go and open schools in remote areas where there are uh, less than 10 kids so the only hope is to strengthen the government education system Uh, so the uh, um, policy is coming crystal about that that you know it's about strengthening um, public school education but of course we are not going to stand in the way of private education and uh, you know what has happened in the last 25 years we have nearly 50% private school education and nearly 70% of enrollment in higher education in private hands and there the concern is that uh, you know there are too many players who are not of good quality and we have to find a way to weed them out and this is not easy actually the everywhere in the world it's usually philanthropic uh, a uh, private sector that that um, you know participates in in education we don't have a way to filter them out so what we have in india is a lot of people uh, under the umbrella of not for profit really working for profit but these are law enforcement issues and uh, you know it's not easy to 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 do this but to filter them out but we have made some suggestions and we have said that we should try to filter them out okay uh my question to uh, professor anita what are your thoughts on the proposal to create school complexes the kotari commission also recommended this but there is a view uh, that it would weaken government schools and also restrict access to education for children i think what is being said by citing kotari commission is completely misleading kotari commission spoke of a school complex in order to have a collaborative synergy between the high schools the high secondary schools which normally are better resourced and the smaller schools the smaller schools neighborhood schools the primary schools the middle schools which actually then become feeder schools for the high school that word is being used but in a completely different sense here we know the background we know uh, what has been happening in, in a couple of states thousands of schools 14000 in one state but many more thousands in another state have been closed under the name of consolidation 
under the name of saying that small schools are suboptimal. So schools which actually provide access because there are habitations which for the young children, you know, you, I mean, that's what BRT was saying, that you need pro in the proximity of the child, within a kilometer, within two kilometers, you know, that's the purpose for saying that you have a, a small school right next to where children are living. Those are being closed or they're being merged with another school. Now, this, again, this uh, trying to say that Kothari Commission recommended this, that's not true. And this kind, we know, we know so many areas where even a kilometer is too much for the child in, in hilly areas, in difficult uh, uh, terrains. But if we're going to close down schools as has been done in the past couple of years, this is the same model. It says they are suboptimal. So it's saying we should have larger institutions. And that's it's saying right through, right up to higher education. Have a college which has 2,500 students. So it's trying to make an economic argument of viability, and that's why also very playing upon the child's right. How can you expect that this is access? And I made it very clear in the beginning, the right does not talk of access. The right talks of actual free and compulsory education in a neighborhood school till completion. It doesn't say, I've built a school where you jolly well come here. Ms. Lina, this proposal to restructure the school system from 10 plus 2 into 5 plus 3 plus 3 plus 4 has given rise to apprehension that it could lead to more exits at each stage than retain students till the higher secondary level. What are your thoughts on it? So, you know, the this is a pedagogical um, alignment where we would like to assess students at grade 3, 5 and 8 to make sure that they have attained uh, the outcomes that are designed for them at these grades. And they don't have to align with physical infrastructure or any of that. That uh, uh, So we have had many questions asking about that. So this is really saying that the kid, uh, child must have to attain foundational literacy and numeracy by grade three, preferably, and if not, certainly by grade five. Um, you know, year after year, the ASAR reports are so, um, you know, it's just the same results year after year, and we have to change that somehow. And so this is an attempt to do that, to refocus attention on learning outcomes at different stages and by doing assessment surveys to ensure that it is being achieved. And and the, the whole idea of the policy was that look at every um, uh, reason why a child is not attaining uh, foundational literacy and numeracy and try to address that. That's that's what the... Uh, so it's not... It has nothing... In fact, we, we think that uh, there is also provision there to uh, make sure that the biggest dropouts that start to happen from beyond grade five is halted. There's so much bleeding. I mean, the largest number of kids who drop out are really in middle school. And by the time you reach 10 standard, you've lost half the kids. So we need to halt that bleeding. And some of this pedagogical corrections, we think, will help uh, halt it. Okay. And uh, continue on this, you know, Ms. Lena, the policy advocates equitable and inclusive education. But surprisingly, there's no mention of a common school curriculum. And even the proposed uh, proposal to impart education, the mother tongue, has been left open-ended in the sense that it said as far as possible. Against this backdrop, how could a synergy between all curricula be established? And wouldn't this actually broaden the existing inequities when you have multiple boards? 
So let me address the medium of instruction first and then I'll let you post the other question again. So the, you see, we have a situation where, uh, well, first up, uh, teaching in the mother tongue is has been said by previous policies also. We just never got around to it because state governments have actually uh, decided that the teaching will happen in the regional language, which is Kannada and Karnataka, with ignoring the fact that there are large swathes of children who live on the borders of Maharashtra who speak Marathi at home. There are swathes of children who speak Telugu at home on the uh, you know um, Andhra Pradesh border. Uh, there are people who speak. Tulu and um, all kinds of la languages, you know, we, people are moving all the time, but also communities. So what we realized is that, first of all, schools actually draw students from localized clusters. So it should be possible for a school in a certain community, and this is, I'm speaking about rural first, um, to uh, teach students in the language that is dominant in that community. And typically, those communities, really, they're clusters, and so they are uh, homogeneous. But there is another problem that comes there, which is the fact that state governments actually transfer teachers. This is actually the root of the problem. You hire somebody from Bangalore, and you post them in who are native uh, Kannada speaking, and then you post them in uh, you know near the Maharashtra border where the children are Marathi speaking. And when the children come to class, they are listening to Kannada, which is a foreign language. And so when they don't attain foundational literacy and numeracy, one has to ask: Is it because of their inability to learn? Obviously not. Uh, but it's because they are also struggling with the language. So the, the whole idea is, is to try to get state governments to um, give up on this idea of regional language for every government school in the state, but to allow local schools to teach in their own language by hiring teachers locally who know the local language. How far we will succeed with this remains to be seen because really education is a state subject and state governments are completely free to do what they think best and the policy cannot influence them and we have not tried to influence them. This is a suggestion. Oh, nice. And uh, what about this uh, absence of a common school curriculum? Wouldn't that actually widen the uh, inequities that exist? Because uh, you, you have multiple boards. Yeah, so I know that the common school curriculum has a very specific meaning in the school education sector. I'm not an expert on that. So um, with due apologies, I'll just say that, you know, the, the discussion about uh, different boards where uh, there were a few observations that, you know, there's there's a lot of exodus towards uh, um, CBSE boards in many states, actually. But at the same time, uh, and that's partially also because the state boards were quite weak and the, the SCRTs were sidelined quite a lot. So what this policy has tried to do is to strengthen the SCRTs so that they can also attend to the fact that children need to be educated within their own context and culture. So the curriculum has to have some, uh, you know, a large, uh, all the examples uh, of teaching a concept should be drawn from the local context and culture. So we need to make that, that um, uh, we need to open up that um, opportunity so that children actually can relate to their real life through their education. So that's the reason why, um, you know, we have let the various boards be, we've made provision to strengthen the SCRT so that then the, those boards get stronger. And then if they take some um, amount of the curriculum from NCRT, so be it, it's a good curriculum. So that's the approach we took.
All right. Uh, a question to you, Professor Anita. This uh, thrust given to vocational education in the policy has led to criticism that it could perpetuate hereditary occupation, weaken the students academically, and possibly lead to early exits from the ed- education system. Do you agree on this? The notion of vocational education as something which is only preparing you for vocations and should not be pushed early in school. That's what the comment, uh, I mean, that's what all our policies have said. We should have equivalent programs right from the first Radha Krishna Commission policy, right down. Our commissions have said, let's not have different statuses for different kinds of programs. Give students a chance to be studying together equivalent with equivalent status of every program. Our vocational education, what is called vocational education, has no education in it. If you look at any of the programs right now, they are only what are called skill-based and this whole hierarchy between knowledge for some and skill for the others, depending on this constructed notion of what is ability as the school constructs it, is what needs to be really questioned because we, are, we already have many hierarchies within our system. So work as part of a, a school program right from day one for all children, whatever you're doing, whether you're doing geography or maths or science, do it with your head, heart and hand, you know, as what even Naitanyam said, is something that should be creatively done. But this is not asking for that. And that's why it's clubbing together of 9, 10, 11, 12 is extremely worrying and problematic because now it says that you will be given vocational courses. You you can take vocational courses. It calls it choice, but we know, we know it's not really choice. We know even in Delhi schools, children who seem to be not keeping up with the rest and I'm not saying they're slow learners because the school immediately calls them that and puts them in a different section, as even in Delhi they do. So this, instead of sorting children out, give them a chance to be together and support them right through that. Give them uh, curricula which are exciting, which really include everyone's knowledge and everyone's uh, experience and culture and skills. Uh, that does not happen. So this is now saying that you will get vocational, but we know that some people will be pushed into that vocational. There are not too many choices left for students uh, who come especially from uh, the first generation uh, of people coming into school or people uh, who are who the system thinks are not really showing the same kind of academic ability. That continuously happens. Unfortunately, even in primary schools, students are sorted into what are called readers and non-readers, you know. This whole discourse of learning outcomes, is that's why extremely, it violates a child's right because it just says these outcomes have to come out of you. And this policy says we are not really focused on inputs. So children who need the most inputs, the need the most support, the most creative way of learning and the most creative professionally trained teachers to be ensuring that which their uh, other children can have through their online tutors or their homes, this is what is being denied to them. It even graduates them. It says we won't talk of inputs. And that is the problem. So now there will be a lot of dropping out. There will be a lot of pushing them away into vocational courses or open school. I mean, Delhi government, I'm sorry to say this, but it shows good results because it tries to 
After class eight, it pushes children into open school because their results don't come out then when the CBSE results show up. So this is what uh, uh, state governments are doing in other states too. They don't let them sit for a board exam; they push them for open schooling. Uh, thank you, and uh, Ms. Lena. <coughs> despite having you know advocating such sweeping uh, school reforms that promises to improve the quality of learning. Is a national testing agency needed to test students at the end of schooling for university admissions? So this is a topic that was debated a lot. You see, while we are, so the policy is very clear about where we would like to go. But the, the journey there is going to be quite difficult and challenging because, you know, so many things are being dismantled, so many, um, you know, new attitudes and mindsets need to be built. And so the interim is going to be very, very difficult. And most parents are anxious about, um, you know, the a handful of so-called good opportunities that they have a perception for, like IITs, for example. Um, and so there is uh, insane levels of competition for those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the for a while, this, this um, problem will persist. And what we felt was that it's better that, uh, you know, the people, only the people who want to try for JE, for example, let me just use that as an example, need to study for that entrance exam. The rest in school can be liberated to uh, experiment with so many, so many other of their interests. So um, the National Testing Agency was was is already doing uh, the first exam of the JEE and they are developing a lot of um, expertise. So also if uh, because of autonomy, higher education institutions are going to have some autonomy in deciding who they admit, which again makes parents very nervous. So if some role can be played by uh, at least some percentage of uh, scores can be used for um, admissions through the National Testing Agency, there, it, there will be a sense that there is at least an attempt to provide a partial level playing field till such time as, uh, you know, some trust is built in the system. We are at the moment in an incredibly trust, trust deficit system. And so it's better to, we felt that instead of trying to examine every, you know every child very rigorously as an exit exam in 10 and 12 it's better to introduce an entrance exam so that only those who are gunning for those entrances need to need to be troubled to go through the exam okay professor anita you know this uh, policy broadly clubs all uh, uh, socio economically disadvantaged groups into one you know and it doesn't speak of any scholarship based on social and educational backwardness would this be an impediment to universal access to education? Yes, and uh, I would, I would again request you not to say universal access because I think we moved away from you know university. But I totally agree with you that you know not accepting, not recognizing, not acknowledging that. Uh, disadvantage just doesn't come from the air. It's it's historical. It's social. It's the way identities are, have been shaped with deprivations or exclusion. Not recognizing that, clubbing everyone under SEDG, shying away from saying Dalit or shying away from saying minority religion or you know anything else, will not really get us to even acknowledge what the issue is. And so this again is a way of sort of glossing over it. You know just put it under ACDG, don't look at any sort of specific 
uh, interventions, then look at specific needs and specific history that students are facing, and how the system has to be sensitized to that. The biggest thing is about our system. Are we sensitive? I mean, we have been really working in teacher education, and the whole thrust is that when our students, whether B.A.B. or M.A.D., when they stop using words like backward or slow learner or you know this because the expectations are low in their eye, in their minds, in their eyes, they have less expectations from some people. Can they stop thinking that way? And that's not easy by just writing a CBG. So I think we have to engage with this. They have to understand what caste is, what does it mean? And what does it mean to a child if a child is from a Muslim community? What does it mean? How how does a child fare within this system? How do the others look at this child? What are the backgrounds of this child brings within? We sensitize our students before they become teachers and trying to understand the diverse social realities and that difference and disadvantage and exclusion is embedded in these. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Lina and from Stanita for articulating your thoughts on the NEP 2020. It's been a very enlightening and fruitful discussion that we had. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is D. Sureshkumar signing off for now. Have a good day.